Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Kazuhiro, a two-time Oscar-winning makeup effects designer from Japan whose credits include The Grinch, 2017's The Darkest Hour, for which both him and Gary Oldman won Academy Awards respectively for the actor's stunning transformation into Winston Churchill, and last year's Bombshell, about the women who took down Fox News head Roger Ailes and the sexual scandals that followed. In today's conversation, the 51-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics. Kazu's personal relationship over the years with makeup legends Dick Smith and Rick Baker, who created iconic makeups for The Exorcist and American Werewolf in London, to name a few, his frustrating experience attempting to transform a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt into a 56-year-old Bruce Willis for Ryan Johnson's Looper, leading to a mental breakdown that caused Kazu to quit the film business, and how a call from Gary Oldman brought him back for The Darkest Hour, which led to Kazu's first Oscar, how turning 50 informed his love for fine art and the projects he'll be taking on during his time left in the business. All of this and much more. As always, I'd like to give a special shout out to Eric Boss, who has been wonderful in mixing every single one of these episodes with a lot of care. If it's your first time enjoying the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Kazu, thank you so, so much for joining us. I'm, I'm extremely excited. Just to channel our conversation, I thought we could talk about the creative duties of a makeup effects designer. Quote, when it comes to special effects makeup, it's about designing a prosthetic that can transform an actor into a new look. I first take a live cast of their face, many photographs of them doing different expressions before I begin designing. And then with the live cast, I can use clay to sculpt on top of it, which helps me decide what kind of alterations and prosthetics will be necessary to turn this actor into that character. Character, close quote. So the examples we'll be discussing today are wide ranging because sometimes it goes from just adding a, a small chin or a nose piece like in Bombshell to being fully covered in makeup like uh, the Grinch. So just for listeners to, to familiarize themselves with the role of a makeup effects designer, if you had to briefly describe your job to a little child, how would you describe it? <laughs> You know, I, I don't do a normal like a beauty makeup because I'm not interested. So if the story or director wants to change the actor into a certain character, more than like a paint makeup can do, more like a three-dimensional change. My job is to turn actor into a totally different person or if they are portraying a historical character, we have to match the look to help to tell the story and also it will help actor to be in that character. My job is to build up you know parts of the face or totally change the uh, structure of the face to match the uh, character in the film and uh, t- try to make new characters fit in the story. 
I just wanted to get that out of the way, and we'll be talking about the many, many examples. Right. But I wanted to go all the way back to your early inspirations and the role that Dick Smith played in your life. Just for listeners to understand, Dick Smith is an Oscar-winning legend in the world of makeup effects design. He created Marlon Brando's look in The Godfather, The Exorcist, and I read that you were introduced to the world of makeup as a teenager in Kyoto, Japan, by reading an article of Dick Smith turning Hal Holbrook into Lincoln in a 1974 series. I'm inspired to hear your story, Kazu, because the same way I'm lucky enough to talk to you today and this concept of mentorship and learning, uh, you began a correspondence with Dick Smith. And by the way, Dick Smith, you know, mentored people like a young J.J. Abrams and Rick Baker. And, you know, the guy was generous and and he allowed for people to write letters to him. So I was wondering, in regards to discussing his creative footprint in the industry, why do you think Dick Smith makeups were so revolutionary? And how did knowing him make you a better makeup effects artist? Uh, okay, okay. What special about him was, as a mentor, you know, he, he really loved the makeup and he cared about the whole industry. And he was really innovative. And he was the first TV makeup artist when uh, NBC started broadcasting. Basically, he was doing all kinds of make- makeup, like a beauty makeup to uh, special effects makeup. And there was a makeup artist, like a special effects makeup artist around the same time. But uh, what he was special about was he really understood what nature looked like and what realistic means. I think around that time, he was only, I, I would say only one, because I was looking at the makeup artist around that time when I was 18, which is 1988. And when he was doing a makeup was around 1940 or 50s. And when I look back the quality of the makeup or ability of the makeup artist he was like a totally different and he was the best of course and what he was doing was quite different and the quality was and the believability and how he expressed like a nature or character to me around that time other people's work was quite cheesy to me you know like uh, i could understand more like a kind of extension of the stage makeup but what he was doing was totally different and the it's really like a quality made for a film. And he's great because he's quite honest. Whenever he got letter from different artists, he really opened about how he thought about their work. And of course, there was sometimes he said, oh, you shouldn't be doing this <laughs> for the, some people. And uh, if he believed in some artists like Rick Baker, he really encouraged him to do more, you know, and helped him a lot. And uh, there's so many, probably like hundreds of makeup artists was helped by him or encouraged by him to be an artist. He really cared about the people too. You know, he changed the whole industry. He's the one who was at the top and everybody tried to catch up with him, you know, to be as good as he was. Dick's makeups looked real, and I liked fooling people with the makeup. That's part of what fascinated me. And another thing that really fascinated me about makeup was the fact that I was an incredibly, like, painfully shy child. I was an only child, you know, I pretty much lived in my little bedroom, you know, in my house. And, and the very first time I made myself up, which I think was more like a vampire kind of makeup, just with this white face and some black around my eyes, I could do things that I couldn't do as little Ricky Baker. I could say things I couldn't say as myself. And that fascinated me, you know. But I really wanted to fool people with makeup, you know. And I wanted people to think what I was doing was real. 
and this Dick Smith's work just looked real to me. It looked more real than anybody else's. So he was the guy that I idolized. Dick Smith is is the one who helped to get you know your first job on this movie called Sweet Home in Japan, where where he was consulting. And I know that after working in Japan, eventually you get to Hollywood and you join Cinovation Studios, which at the time was headed by Oscar winner Rick Baker, which again, for listeners who are not familiar with his work, seven times, you know, Academy Award winning and, and American Werewolf and The Grinch. And, and Rick was staffing up Men in Black at the time on which you helped, you know, with the character, Vincent D'Onofrio's character, Edgar, the bug. And it's, it's wonderful to hear you talk about the fact that when Men in Black was coming up, you were experimenting with new materials, silicone. Do we go with hard silicone, soft silicone? How do we find new ways to translate technical choices into creativity? So I was wondering, you know, from learning basic techniques like melding edges and painting skin tones, what was the biggest learning curve when you started working at Cinovation Studios? And how did your creative relationship with Rick Baker evolve over the course of, of the movies? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You you do a really good research. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so when I was seventeen, I started to know Dick, and uh, he he actually recommended me to join that Japanese film, Sweet Home. And I get to know uh, one artist, uh, Eddie Yang. He was an American crew. He came to Japan to work on uh, Sweet Home. And we became a good friend. And of course, since I started even as a hobby, it was a dream to come to Hollywood to work on a film. But it was really hard because it's a you know, issue with a visa and a green card. It wasn't easy to get it. I was dreaming about it. And finally, 1996, I've been talking to Eddie, you know, every month. Of course, he was he was living in L.A. I was talking to him and I asked him, you know, I, I'm going to L.A. even illegal next year and I need your help to find a job. So Eddie just started to work on Many Black and he said, uh, okay, Rick was looking for uh, someone who can design and create the makeup and so I would talk to him. Rick knew about me from other artists and of course from Dick Smith and he decided to hire me. It was a really quick move because I talked to Eddie and a week later I got a phone call from Rick's uh, assistant and she said uh, you can come anytime and we will provide a visa. And I was hired to help him create that Edgar character. Around that time Everybody was trying to figure out how we can make the makeup more realistic. Common material we were using at that time was a foam latex, which is a sponge, like a latex sponge, which was quite opaque. And we have to mimic the skin tone by painting opaque material to make it look like a translucent. But as uh, technology and uh, quality of the film and how they develop and also they started to make like a high vision camera which is a video camera but has a much more finer you know detail they can reproduce and so we had to find the better way to make a skin look like a skin you know like artificial skin and so someone brought back the technique they used to use in a long time ago like it was gelatin and we can tint it like a skin tone and it has a translucency but the problem with it is heat and sweat will melt the appliance to put glue on the skin so you know it's good to use in 
Like, for example, LA, it's much drier compared to the Japan. And Japan was horrible because it's so much humid. And、uh, if we use the gelatin, if I leave it in the room overnight, it swells up because it's a moisture absorbed in the material. So we couldn't use it. It's not the ideal material. So I started to do a research on the silicon. At that time, silicon was so expensive and much harder than now. But try to figure out a better material. And, you know, it was a popular thing to do for the female to have a breast implant, like a silicone implant. And those are very soft material. So everybody tried to figure out how to use that for the makeup appliances, prosthetic. So I started to do a test. And、uh, once I hired by Rick to create that makeup, I went into the, like, a Testing and developing phase. I think I spent almost like a month to figure out what would be the best way to make appliances because around that time, pre production was much longer than now. In a big production, we could spend like a six month before filming. You know, nowadays, the maximum like two or one month because you know, post production technology is so. Much better now, and、uh, they want to do that afterwards. <laughs> so we don't have much time. But do you mean that sometimes they think they can fix a makeup in post production? Right. And also, how to work on those effects became more, more, more like a CG heavy rather than the physical effects compared to like, like、uh, 20 years ago. So then I was trying to figure out different techniques and different material to come up with a new way to cast a makeup piece that can be used on the skin. At that time, everybody had a, had a hard time to make like a very fine edge, which can be blended on the skin because it's not a mask. Like a makeup is like a, we use a prince and prosthetic that can be blended to the skin instead of cover, cover up the whole face. Edge of the appliance h a v e to be really thin to make it invisible you know, after we apply, but、uh, it was really hard. But finally, I came up with like, a technique to cast a piece with a really fine edge. As we go on with Collaboration projects between you and Rick Baker, we come across Planet of the Apes in 2001.、Mm. And I think I need to ask you about this experience specifically because the 1968 film and John Chambers' ape design is iconic. So I was wondering what was the biggest creative challenge of handling so many ape makeups at the same time? And what techniques do you think you could rely on this 2001 movie on a design level that simply could not have been done 35 years before on the original film? Right. You know, amount of the makeup wise, the Grinch was much bigger. And the good thing about the ape makeup is what we did is we had a main character and main background character's live cast. But the rest of the character, we were using a latex mask. You know, because it's so far away, it doesn't have to move and it will be okay. And some background character, we used generic pieces and glued on them. Like some character is not like an unrecognizable character, which just a p p e a r and disappear and we don't see it again in the film. And those characters could have generic piece, or even like a, there was some character I was using the same piece. Made for Tim Roth and glued on 
stunt guy or background characters. And the good thing is they are hairy, so we can change the look by adding a more hair or less hair or change the hairstyle, and we can create a, lots of different characters. But still, we took a lots of people to apply the makeup and to be on set. And even like a hundred a background mask, it takes a lots of people. But when we are doing a Grinch, they converted one sound stage with 70 makeup stations. And that's kind of the biggest show I ever worked on. That was a long pre-production too, but that was crazy because you know, we had a 70 makeup artist with a 35 hairstylist on set and the main character had each makeup trailer. So it's a big production. You know, like um, the main difference, uh, like uh, when John Chambers did first Planet of the Apes, of course, it's uh, it was really, you know, like a technology around that time compared to, you know, 2001 was, of course, still primitive, but, you know, they did an amazing job. And the only thing, when I even like I watched when I was a kid, I was thinking, so there's a, like a chimpanzee and gorilla in the long term. Each one kind of similar to each other in a lack of characters. You know, it's almost like a, almost looks the same. And of course, at that time, they didn't have that much of a budget. Probably like a whole concept of a movie making with a makeup was different. And that's why it was a groundbreaking movie. But 2001 version of A Planet of the Apes, Rick really wanted to individualize each characters. He wanted to give character on each actors and also the issue with the old version was basically like a teeth was sculpted in on appliance and when actors speaks they just kind of uh, mouth is just open up and close there's no expression on the lips and no not much of a movement only movement was an open and close of a mouth and also around the eyes and so he wanted to change that and he came up with the idea about putting a big denture on the actor and take a life cast with a big denture. And we sculpted uh, each character on that life cast. So when actor moved their lips, it would transfer to the uh, appliance's lip and they will move. So that, that was a big difference. And uh, that made each character iconic and believable. Who are you? Captain Leo Davidson, I'm pilot in the U.S. Air Force. I come from a planet called Earth. Your apes permit you to fly? Our apes live in zoos. They do what we tell them. <sighs> I think it's fair to call this hostile territory. I've got exactly 36 hours to rendezvous with my friends, and I'm out of this nightmare. I want to ask you about the relationship with the actors, because obviously without a great actor who delivers a great performance, even the best makeup is not going to work. So some actors step into a production with preconceptions. They aren't willing to sit hours and hours into the makeup chair. <laughs> I mean, you have been right. open about the fact that working with, with Jim, Jim Carrey on The Grinch was difficult in a way. Mm -hmm. Much like John Lithgow, who plays Roger Ailes in Bombshell, he was originally skeptical about the prosthetics. So because casting the right performance is crucial to your process, how do you design your makeups around the need of a performer? And when you think of your best experiences you've had in your career, how does an actor being open and passionate and interested about what you do ultimately translates into a better makeup experience? It's so different on each project because it's uh, what they want and what they need, totally different. And of course, you know, when I read the script, you know, I will start to think about what I need to do 
and also looking at the actor's face and what will be most effective. And there will be an opinion of, from a director and also a request from actor. And everything just had come together and to make makeup believable and more like a functionable. You know, it's, everybody has a kind of certain kind of a habit or different expression and how they move their face. And when I sculpt, I always think about the movement of the actor's face and how they will act with it. And that will be the part of the information I had to mix into the design to make it move with actor and still effective enough without covering too much because you know less is better of course and uh, the, the more we pile up stuff on the actor's face it will be harder for actor to move their face so lots comes into designing as soon as i start to touch the clay and put on the actor's life cast i already started to think about how i would apply and what would happen on set and what could be the issue on set and how I can cut down the makeup application time because I don't want to spend like five hours on actor to apply every day. And, you know, actor have to do acting afterwards. You know, they have to work. And before that, I don't want them to sit in the makeup chair for five hours, you know. And I don't want to wake up three in the morning, you know, to do a makeup job. And that's a tough part about the makeup job. Of course, in some cases, I have to do it. But like sleep is a really <laughs> important part of being healthy. So each job is so different. And so I have to think about that. That's why I'm doing this job, because it's so fun to think about and uh, expect what would happen, what could be better, and always think about that. Great thing about this job is there's no rule. You know, you can put anything you want and you can kind of change the technique or come up with a new technique and that. We need to remember that makeup artists are often the first ones, there, especially on these bigger movies, first one there in the morning, last one's out because you're applying and you're removing. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you about your collaboration with your team of makeup artists because mm -hmm. consistency is key in this line of work. Over a hundred days or, you know, of shooting, you have to apply the makeup in the exact same position or it's going to read on camera. Right. Not only by the way you're making copies of a prosthetic from a mold, you're, you're kind of starting from scratch every morning because when you remove appliance at the end of the day, you're pretty much just trashing it, but you're not always the one applying the makeup. And that to me is interesting because you have to not only mentor young artists, but you have to rely within people from your team. What kind of creative qualities do you look for in the team members that you hire? And why do you think it's important for them not only to excel in the application process, but have an overall understanding of makeup design? I used to like to apply the makeup I designed because it's very important to you know start from design and apply it and finish it. After I had a bad experience on set with some actors and also it's really conditioned me to dislike to be on set and uh, I also don't like to wait either like most of the job on set is waiting. So I started to realize it, it's really like a kind of tough on the mental health and also physical health too because it's like a, as you said like a, to be a makeup artist on set you wake up really early in the morning and start to apply the makeup and uh, all day on set 
and eating, you know, greasy food, and, uh, and the lack of sleep and lots of stress because being on set, the job is lots of unexpected thing happens. So if you are control freak, it will be really bad because it's you know like hundreds of people working together. And something happens, and it had to change, and the weather changes, or situation changes, and every every you know all, it's just changing all the time. And uh, so that was why I started to ask makeup artists to apply. In the 2014, I left the film industry because I started to realize it's a really to me it was unhealthy, and I, I felt like I'm not good for this. But application-wise. You know, sometimes I do apply makeup and because when I worked on a bombshell, Charisse asked me to be on set every morning to help apply the makeup. You know, it's a difficult thing is, like you said, a consistency, make the actor look the same, you know, like every day. And the continuity is also important. But I hate continuity because it's a, I don't like repeating the same thing again and again every day. Because I always like to change and improve something. When I decide who I work with as a makeup artist, it's a very important because it's a, you know, actor is a human and the makeup artist is human. And uh, we have to find a good match because if there is a confliction with the personality, it doesn't work. And if actors start to hate the makeup artist, that's not good. So the first thing I see is I always find if this person is a good person or not, and he has a common sense. It's very important because, you know, the distance we walk with actors is so close, like a dentist, you know, like we are on their face and for all day, basically, you know. So it had to be a good person to give it to actor and uh, someone I can trust and it's very difficult to apply appearance makeup every day in the same way. There's so many elements. Like a first is how to take care of actors' skin and apply appliances on their skin with a glue. And the positioning is really important and how to paint it every day in the same way. And also removing that makeup is really important because we don't want to hurt actors' skin. It takes a lot of skill and the patients as a makeup artist. Of course, I will go through like a test makeup and also you know, showing them how to apply the makeup. But the makeup artists themselves have to be the person who can accommodate and change their way to fit on a new job. And also they have to understand, you know, actors' mentality because they will be working together for like a more than 20 days or 40 days every day. And unfortunately, I have been working with many great makeup artists. So I would say like uh, the most important part is uh, really like a personality. That's the first thing more than a skill. Because if personality doesn't work, no matter how good they are, they won't last. I wanted to ask you about click with Adam Sandler mm-hmm. and the concept of aging. Aging actors on screen is something Dick Smith also had to do with Amadeus, for which you won the Oscar. Aging actors by years or decades. And you were Oscar nominated for that with with Bill Corso. Quote, 
It's very important to understand the anatomy of a face and the mechanism of the makeup, to know what to cover and what not to cover by an appliance along with what cannot be done by a makeup is important as well, close quote. What do you think divides a well done aging makeup from a bad one when you see it on screen? <laughs> okay, wow. You know, the, the hard part of aging makeup is even like a normal person who doesn't do makeup, they can tell if there's something wrong with it. Because, you know, people look at other people every day, old or young. It's very difficult to make something believable. And the nature is so perfect, and we are trying to mimic that. I can point out every detail and what could be wrong, but basically what we are doing is so difficult because we try to rebuild a new face on an actor's face, right? And anatomy is so complex. We have a skull and a muscle on top of it and the skin covering it, and that moves. And we are trying to build new bone structure and the new skin and the muscle on top of it. So we really have to understand what could move and what won't. When people get older, they rather shrink. And what we are trying to do is we are putting on something on their actor's face to make it look smaller and shrinking. So we have to really have a good decision what to do on the actor's face to make them look older. You know, it's not just simply like a stage makeup, like a graying hair and uh, draw lines and that won't work on a film. The typical mistake people make about old age makeup is they do design by the concept they have in their head rather than try to really learn from nature. You know, like when people get old, they will get eye bags and they will have a, an azurabial fold, like a wrinkle, like a, like a line on the side of the face. And so if we put that, they will look older. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, age people have a different way of aging. It's easy to age skinny person rather than a fat person. But that's a tough part to find the best answer that will make it believable in the film. Like also how to make a wig and everything, like a hairstyle, amount of the hair. And we have to know all of that. Without those knowledge and understanding, it's really it's so hard to make it believable. And especially like a, people know the actor's face really well, and then make them older and still believable. It's quite difficult because if there's a certain, like a little change on actor's face, they will find out, oh, there's something different. Naturally, people start to look for something wrong or something unnatural. That's a, like a normal habit of the human being. And so we have to kind of fool the audience to make it look like this is real old person. You know, what, <laughs> what I usually tr try to think is you have to be the best, your best critic of what you do, like a beyond anyone else. You have to be really hard on yourself or it's hard to have a successful design on the makeup, like especially like a natural looking old age or character makeup. And you transformed Joseph Gordon-Levitt into a young Bruce Willis for Ryan Johnson's Looper. And I, I just thought it would be interesting to pause on that for a second because, you know, we spoke about relationship with actors and we spoke about how to turn technical choices into creative ones. And the fact that 
Bruce Willis, you know, famously says that he he's not willing to spend more than 10 minutes in the makeup chair forces you rather than have two men and create a face in the middle to try and grab Joseph Gordon-Levitt and turn him into someone who may look like he might age into Bruce Willis. And I just want to ask you about this project. Quote, I told them it couldn't be done because it's just impossible. I made a facial piece for Joe, the nose, the upper lip, and the lower lip, and a plastic piece to pull back Joe's ears. But actually, not much could be done to make him look like Bruce. The anatomy is just way too different. Close quote. If you could have had total creative freedom, how do you think your approach to the film would have been different to blend, you know, two faces in the middle? Wow. It's, it's, a, it's a hard to tell because... It's really depend on which actor they have. Because every time we have to walk within a situation or condition we have, we cannot do whatever, I mean, I cannot do whatever I feel like it would work. That's uh, another fun part of this job is always there's some kind of uh, aspect that's impossible to do. And uh, we have to come up with an answer for that. At the Dash show, literally I turned down once because I knew it's not going to work. But... What made it work was Joe's acting ability and also Ryan's storytelling. Without that, it didn't work because it's like, a, for example, if I put Joe right next to Bruce without any story behind it, they wouldn't look like each other at all. It just doesn't work. If Bruce are willing to have a makeup on, like a prosthetic makeup on, and spend like a few hours on chair, the approach will be totally different. But that's also, we are here to tell a story and we have to decide which way to go. That makes a big difference of outcome as a film. Uh, that's how we, each of us, we had to be an artist, you know, to tell the story. And, uh, you know, maybe audience won't like it or they love it. I don't know. But uh, that's how we leave the signature on each piece, probably. So before discussing the final two projects, uh, I would like for listeners to look up the incredible fine art that you do outside of cinema, because I know that it's a big part of your life now. These are amazing, large-size, hyper-realistic portrait sculptures. And you mentioned a moment ago that, that, that it took you, you know, about 10 years to conjure up the courage to quit, for a moment, quit the film business. Mm-hmm. Once you became a, a sculptor full-time, you started creating these amazing busts of, of people like Frida Kahlo and Salvador Dali and Lincoln and so many more. Each one, it sounds like it takes three, four months to create, and and they look like anywhere from two to eight times bigger than a life-size headwood. About a year, this to say, quote, The sculpture's large size makes the audience feel like a child. Although it doesn't move, I always try to put in movement by sculpting the beginning of an expression, the illusion of a face on the verge of sliding into a mix of emotions. I choose my subjects based on people I not only admire, but who went through a lot of struggle and through breakthrough found a new way to live. By creating these people, I also encourage myself to figure out what my life is about, close quote. And and it's it's beautiful. You know, these things are so jaw-dropping. So how has your creative and technical process evolved from the first portrait sculpture that you did? And how does mentally and emotionally, how does that process feel different than being on a movie set? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you manipulate the words really well. You know, I don't have that ability. <laughs> I'm not so good at talk about something. 
that's why I'm doing my job. It's like I, I make it and show it to someone. That's all I need to do. And then you, you've been asking great questions. Okay, I will start from a big difference, like、uh, compared to the、uh, film job and the fine art. So film job, basically, I just simply wait the job to come to me and figure out what to do with that. And the act of creating is react to what they need. And from there, I will start to grow out and create something that I want to make. But fine art, there's nothing there. I'm the one who have to make it happen and start to make something and finish it. There's a quite difference. You know, like art, a film job is a collaboration. You know, like many people involved in it, and it's not just about. What I do is lead so many process and many stages of working with different departments. And that's a great part and a fun part. Fine art, in my case, is really like a solitary process. Like I will be myself in my house and start to sculpt and create the concept and the design and the sculpt. You know, sometimes I hire assistant to help me on the hair work and that. And、uh, since the sculpture is so big, I need the help to carry around, or uh, uh, when I set up, I need the help. It's really interesting because I have a two sides. I think it's like probably I'm such an introvert. I like to be alone most of my lifetime. <laughs> I don't do well with、um, too many people. You know, like I don't like to be in a crowded space. I'm not extrovert. I get tired when I go to party, and I always try to prevent to go to party. <laughs> so I love fine art because of that. You know, usually even like a film job, I try to isolate myself. You know, like I don't want the producer come to me every day asking me, "Okay, how is going?" You know, even like、uh, when I apply makeup, I ask AD, "Okay, I will finish this in three hours." So don't come to makeup trailer every 15 minutes. Ask me how it's going. You know, just throw throw me down. I cannot be energized by the、uh, other people. You know, like a lady has to be, you know, drive myself. But、um, <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> we were we were talking about how well how your process evolved from the first sculpture you did to later. This is the thing. Even the one you did for Dick Smith. Was so beautiful. Thank you. And it it's it's striking to me to think that you got better at it because it was amazing in the first place. I just wonder in regards to material and your process if you found a better way of of doing these. So I wonder how your decisions change on on how to make them. Right.、Uh, you know, like a, it's not bigger. Like a scale is the same, but I kind of started to change the、uh, how I make it. The one is technique. Like a Dick Smith was. Portrait. I simply wanted Lily like I celebrate his birthday, like eight years of birthday, and that was a、uh, my goal. And when I showed that to like a makeup trade show, of course there are some people who knew Dick Smith, and there are some people who never met Dick Smith. I really enjoyed looking at how audience connected to my work. That's quite different compared to film because film you don't see audience that way. They you know get they go into a theater and they watch it and、uh, we can hear what they thought. But the difference is it's really up to the people who view the art piece because 
they have all different mentality when they approach to the sculpture, and depending on what they are thinking, the sculpture will look different to the, each people. Film in the same way, but film almost like a put you in the situation to contain them to watch it. You know, it's quite a different process. It's not like art pieces. And so I really enjoyed I could see how the people are looking at it. And also, it's so personal. And uh, it's quite different compared to how I feel about the film. Because such a you know, collaboration job, everybody has to be on top of it to make it something amazing. Technically, I, you know, special effects makeup too, but uh, you know, fine art, I, I have been changing a technique and how to create each pieces because I like it, I like innovation, and I used to use like a traditional technique, and now I use a lot of like a digital and 3D printer because the difference is like traditional technique, it's really bad for environment. Like filmmaking is bad for environment, actually. <laughs> you know, there's, we create so many trash every day on set. And the same thing, like uh, the traditional technique, I will have, just by making uh, one sculpture, I would have a big garbage bag full of material, like a trash, like maybe at least like eight bag of them. But the traditional technique was like that, like a really like a wasting uh, material and, you know, polluting environment, I think. But now I use a 3D printer and uh, probably I I just come up with uh, like a three bag of trash at the end, you know, like that kind of difference. I feel really fortunate that I have a way to live and um, spend every day by doing what I feel like doing, (laughs) rather than just a normal job. But I started to think, like, when I left the film industry, I thought, okay, so I I would do fine art. And when Gary Oldman came to me about film job for Darkest Hour, I felt like, well, I made a decision and I'm going this way. So if I go back to the film industry, you know, I will be betraying my life decision. So the commitment is really important. When you make a really commitment, it will happen for you. Of course, you have to do a lot of effort to make it happen, but life will open a new door for you when you make a commitment. So once I decided to leave the film industry, I started to turn down all jobs came to me. Then fine art things start to happen. You know, like uh, Brad Pitt came to me to help him to design the furniture. And also uh, Paul McCarthy, he's an amazing contemporary artist and came to me to help his work. So it was a great realization. Okay, life is not up to what was a conceptualized thing by the past people. It's like a, we really have to figure out the way of life. Do you want to live? After I made the decision, film job came to me after like four years, and I was thinking, uh, should I decline this or not? And uh, you know, I love Gary Oldman. You know, he's an amazing actor, and uh, he told me that he won't take this job if I cannot do a makeup. And uh, the reason why I was doing a special effects makeup was a uh, Lincoln makeup done by Dick Smith. That was a big inspiration, and he changed my life. So I thought. Okay, I would really regret if I don't do this. And at that time, you know, like a responsibility, how I feel responsible about the film job is, was totally different. And uh, when I was in the film industry, I thought, oh, there's no other way to live. You know, I have to stick with this till I die. You know, and of course I wanted to, 
But the situation was getting worse. They started to spend more money on the post-production rather than pre-production. And our job is cut down a lot. And since like a computer started to flourish, every time they make a new movie, they are more like excited to use that new technique rather than traditional ones. So whole situation changed and I didn't know where my life will be. So you know, I had a meeting with Gary and uh, he kind of jokingly said, yeah, we can, you know, do this job together and uh, get Oscar and the final we can retire. <laughs> you know, I respect him a lot and I really wanted him to have Oscar. You know, it's, it's not the Oscar is not everything, but it's a great thing to have because it's like, a, I'm sure everybody who is in the film industry will dream about it. You know, it's not like us. No one just say, oh, I don't care about that. You know, <laughs> so, well, maybe I should do it. You spoke about pre-production. Yeah. And this is, to me, the exciting part about Darkest Hour, because it sounds like you had more time than usual to develop the makeup. You know, I'll ask you, the last two projects are Darkest Hour and Bombshell, but mm -hmm. the degrees of likeness between a performer and the real-life person they're playing are a big conversation. Yes, you could technically make Gary Oldman look exactly like Winston Churchill, but he would probably be completely covered up. Mm -hmm. About the project, you had this to say, quote, Gary and Churchill don't look like each other at all. The proportion of the face, the placement of the eyes, nose and mouth, it's almost total opposite. Churchill's eyes are buggy and farther apart. Gary's eyes are deep set and close to each other. Close quote. So his eyes are obviously the key to his emotional acting. And it's my understanding that along with his forehead and his mouth, you decided to keep those prosthetics free but his cheeks, jowls, neck, and chin would be covered and a small bit on the nose to make him look like the, the famous Churchill pug nose. The makeup takes three hours and 15 minutes every day, roughly. So I was wondering, over the course of these months of testing through pre-production, when you say we needed to get the essence of Winston Churchill onto the screen, how did the design evolve from the way you thought you were going to approach it to the one we actually saw on the screen? It was quite a challenge for me because I was away from the film, film industry for like four years. And so I jumped back on and almost like a relearning how to do makeup. But the great thing was, you know, after I spent so many years to create a portrait, I learned a lot about human face too by doing that. Doing portrait sculpture and uh, makeup is quite different. Likeness makeup is quite different. And it took me a while. So the first, we did a three-test makeup. And uh, to me, it uh, looked mediocre quality, and it wasn't that good. We did three different versions. And then I spent a month to improve that. And we did uh, two different versions after that. And that time, Joe Wright came to L.A., and uh, I used to have my studio in East LA. And have you? I don't know if you know about East LA, but <laughs> it's not a good place to be. No, it's not, uh, because I was focused on the fine art, and uh, you know, like a, it's like a, lots of art gallery and the studio started to happen around that area. So that's why I was there. And uh, and the look back, I was so kind of I feel awkward that. 
I brought so many famous Hollywood actors to that location. You know, like a, it was pretty much like a shithole. And、uh, I started to hate it, and that's why I moved to the new location. And so I did the two more test makeup, and the, the final one was、uh, it was it looks good. And so we decided to go with it. And、uh, we plan to do another test makeup in London, and that was where they were shooting. We did one, and I was walking with、uh, David Marinowski and Lucy Civic. They are British makeup artists. They were amazing, talented makeup artists. And、uh, the first one was I was showing them how to apply and、uh, what was supposed to be, and they took over. And after that first makeup, there was something I really wanted to change. Because of the situation, I hired DDT, David and Monse in Barcelona to run pieces because it's like a, like, like you said, like a silicone pieces. After we apply, we have to throw away every day, and then we need new one. So if we have to shoot like a forty days, we have to have a more than forty sets of appliances to be ready for filming. And so we hired DDT, and they're running pieces. So after the test makeup, I was looking at it, and just something missing. So I decided to go to Barcelona, and、uh, I made a new chick. Then we did another test. And、uh, that was a big improvement, and、uh, that was a final design. And so I end up doing like seven tests. The testing I learned from Rick, Rick Baker. And、uh, Rick really spent time to test and film test and redo it and finalize it. And it's a really important process because many director and producer they cannot see the refinement. And what could be better when they see like a makeup? Oh, something changed and looks great. And okay, let's shoot. It won't happen that way, you know. We learn so many things just by doing once and twice. And still, there's something we can refine on set every day. That process is so important. And、uh, when I take the show, I usually take the show that give me enough time. To make something good, rather than whatever comes out will be good. You know, like it's really important to spend that process. It's not like a one-shot thing. You know, it, it, it was a great experience, and I learned about myself a lot, and I, I learned about makeup a lot by going through that whole process. Every show is so different. Like I even like I started Bombshell. It's almost like every show I take, I feel like I'm learning from beginning again. You know. My last question about Darkest Hour regards your collaboration with the hair and costume department. For Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman shaved his head to, you know, save save time on the makeup every morning, and he's wearing a wig that's made out of a mix of adult and baby hair.、Mm -hmm. And because the wig is so fragile, you have to make a new one every ten days. And likewise, on a wardrobe department, I'm thinking about heavier characters, you know, bigger ones like Norbit or Churchill. And actors need to wear a foam suit, and that forces you to collaborate also with the wardrobe department. So. How much time and resources do you invest on hair when it comes to designing a character, and how do you simultaneously work with the wardrobe department in regards to testing bodysuits? Right, it's a it's a really depend on the show. When we design character, the hair is important too because it's a part of the sculpture. If the proportion of the hair is off, everything start to fall apart. 
So I usually work with uh, Diana Choi, who is a wig maker. What I do is I will make a wig block and uh, draw a hairline in the hair direction. And uh, I would tell her the texture of the hair and the color and the amount of the hair. And we kind of do back and forth and finalize the design. And I dress it and bring to the test makeup. But the darkest hour, every day of filming, Lucy Civic, she took care of the wig. In that case, uh, we didn't have hair department involved in it. But for example, like a bombshell, we had hair department that working on the other part, like a wig and that. So it really depends about the costume. To change the body form, uh, usually is our job. For example, like a darkest hour, we had that Vanessa Lee. How we communicate is like usually like so we have a body form of uh, Gary and I brought to her and sometimes I do a Photoshop design or photograph reference. So I want the body shape to be this way. You know, most of the time Winston Churchill, he was wearing uh, lots of suits. So we don't really see the body shape of him. There was some picture of him in the swimsuit, but that was only references. And give her a reference to go with, and we do a fitting, and we change some part according to the, what came out as a test. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with, with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! Bombshell for the John Lithgow. We had an amazing costume designer, Corinne Atwood, and she was making a bodysuit because that show we only have a month for the pre production. It was good for me for her to design the bodysuits because she had to make a, a suits on top of it too. You know, like a, I don't want to be a problem for her that she won't have a body shape and so she cannot design the suits so she can do everything in-house so that was better situation so it's a really dependent on the show and when we design the character everything is important from head, head to toe you know like everything had to be balanced and according to that i will communicate with each department Allow me then to transition into the last project, which is Bombshell. Yeah. In this case, you were once again contacted by lead actor, uh, Charlie Theron, who, who was a producer on mm -hmm. Mindhunter season two. You won your second Oscar for Bombshell just earlier this year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. You're going from Darkest Hour, you your focus is mainly on one character. Suddenly you're working with multiple makeups and three characters. You have to split your energy and resources you know, on real life characters like Megan Kelly, Gretchen Carlson, and Roger Ailes. And each one, as we said, requires a different degree of likeness depending on what the actor prefers, what the producers prefer. How do you try and shave off time off the application over a course of a shoot? Oh, I see. And uh, yeah, what did those days on set look like when you're 
constantly having to check in with multiple characters as opposed to one character. Right, right. So at the beginning of that show, I was uh, talking with Sharice、uh, and it was a condition that I don't need to be on set. Like,、uh, I don't want to be on set because I had another commitment, which was a fine art and project. And so I told her that, okay, I will be on set at the beginning to make sure that everything's working fine and I will. Hand over the makeup to the makeup artist. When we do a show like that, we look at the schedule and we find out okay, how many days each character will work and if they overlap or not, and how many makeup artists will be necessary to work on each character. s Because it's a prosthetic makeup, usually you know, it's good to have two people work on one actor to make it faster. It's not impossible. One person to、uh, one actor, but it's just better for the actor because we can get done faster. And so we had、uh, Bill Corso doing、uh, Nicole Kidman and because they've been working together for a long time. And Richard Redriffson and、uh, Hiroshi Yada was working on John Lithgow. And uh, Kelly uh, Golden and、uh, Vivian Baker. She's a co winner of the Oscar. She was a department head, and so they w a s supposed to be working on Charisse. So we started, and I think after a week, Charisse asked me, please be on set, you know, like doing application. Because it, it was a really hard makeup, it's a really tricky makeup, especially like we had to apply eyelids. And then the most delicate part on the face because its skin is so thin. And if the piece is a little bit off, it will be so hard for her to blink or make expression. Like if the amount of the glue is too much, it will hurt her skin the next day. So we have to shut down the production. So she was more comfortable for me to be on set. And that's why I decided to be on set. And she, she's such a lovely person. It's like, She changed the way I feel about the actor actually <laughs> because you know she's really inclusive and she makes everybody around her like a part of the family, such a loving person. And that's another reason why I say yes to her because such a great person to be with. Yeah, it's、uh, like answering your question is just a、uh, it's really dependent on the situation. And sometimes, you know, like a production won't allow to have that many makeup artists to be on set because it's、uh, of a budget. But for this show, we have to have those characters working at the same time and so- sometimes overlapping. So we have to have that much of the makeup artist. And Vivian Baker was a department head and she, she's amazing too. And she could figure out. Who to be on set and who will be in a makeup trailer without making it hard for the production, too. So, no one really wins by suing Fox News. It's been our experience that once you go public in your job, no one will hire you. If you're able to stick it out at Fox, gather more evidence, you might be able to sue Ailes himself instead of Fox. And that is why I'm here. Because Marty Hyman told me that over here in New Jersey, I can avoid arbitration by suing Roger personally. He says that you've managed to change the law and that we could call other women and show a pattern. Will other women come forward? Yes, they will. You live and work in New York. 
Roger has a house in Burden County where he stays when he can't make it upstate. <laughs> you do your homework, Miss Carlson. No fingerprints. If Roger finds out you came to us, he won't just fire you. Mm. He will bang us with a million-dollar lawsuit. He will attack you personally. These men, they care more about their reputations than they do money. Roger won't stop. Oh, I know. You know that. Mm -hmm. Colleagues you admire will say publicly you're a superior, ambitious woman who's suing because her career stalled. Let him. Let's focus on Charlie's makeup because I'm curious to ask you about adopting computer technology, which is something we talked about earlier on. Mm -hmm. You know, we spoke about the fact that for you, in the case of, of transforming Charlie's into Megan Kelly, it's about trying to figure out what specific parts of the face are gonna make the audience recognize Megan Kelly as Megan Kelly. You know, she has the most appliances out of the three characters we spoke about. You mentioned reshaping the eyelids, a nose tip, chin, jaw, and a fabric and nose plug, you know, to make her nostrils a little wider. Yeah. And this is the a good user of 3D technology. It's my understanding that you used it not only to do a 3D scan of the face, because when you take a live cast, sometimes, you know, by a little bit, but it kind of transforms the face by pushing the skin down. Yeah. And 3D allows you to do a clean scan. And at the same time, you're printing these nose plugs. With the introduction of computer technology, how do you think your, uh, your approach to Charlie's as makeup would have been different if they asked you to do it 15 years ago. <laughs> I think it's a quite different, but I hope I'm better than 15 years ago, so I will be making a mistake. But uh, when I do a live cast, I still use both. So physical live cast and the digital live cast. Digital is a great, but still have an issue. Physical live cast, it's a, just a pretty much a copy of their skin texture and everything. But the problem, like you said, the weight of the material distorts actor's face, and that's not good. And the actor has to be in a live casting material for 20 to 30 minutes. They will be encased in the material and the breathing through the nose only. And lots of things can happen during that time. You know, like uh, if actors start to move, it will distort the whole form and shape. And uh, we use the silicone and the support with uh, plaster bandage. And if actor move during that time or start to freak out, it will be ruined. And the great thing about the scan is it can be done in a few seconds or I don't know, like uh, if we use a handheld scanner, it will take like a few minutes and it can be done. But the detail I get from that is not even like close to the uh, physical life cast. It's, you know, getting better, but still not there yet. So what I use is I have a physical life cast and sometimes replaced with digital life cast on the parts I need, especially like an open eye scan. Is it very important? Because we can take an open eye life cast in some technique we have, but the skin around the eyes are so delicate and just a tiny bit of the material will distort the shape or form. Scanning won't touch the skin and it can be done quickly. So that's the best way to get the information around the eyes. So what I did was when I made eyelid appliance, I worked with Cerise's uh, scan to make the appliance. And then when I did the nose plug, you know, traditional way would be when actor needed the nose plug is just simply widen the nostril. So what they were doing is they cut the rubber tubing and they put in the nose and that was it. 
But for this case, I had to alter the shape of a nostril in a specific way. So I was thinking, okay, well, how should I do it in such a delicate part? So I, I took a cast of a nostril of her nose and I started to think, okay, what would be the best way? And we only have a month to prepare everything before the test. And if I want to change, you know, like a sculpting a nose plug and mold it and cast it, and for every day, it's going to be too much for everybody. Or maybe I can scan the shape of the inside of her nose and design the nose plug in a computer and print out in a 3D printer. And that will be much faster. And if I want to change it, I can change in a computer and print right away in a few hours. And if I want uh, 40 sets for filming, I can print 40 pieces at one time. So I decided to go with the digital, and that's how I decided to use that technique for the nose plug. And it was great because it's, uh, it just makes sense to use that way. And I started to use more these days to design uh, digital because it's just simply faster. Of course, there is something, it can be done. But compared to hand, like for example, sculpting and that, still, you know, like a physical sculpting is, is much better than digital sculpting. And because it's not like a sculpt the whole head realistically, it can be done digital, but making a makeup appliance that blend into the skin is such a delicate thing to figure out, even like a, just a one eighth of the inch longer on the edge that will ruin the whole makeup because it's like we need to know where to end and what to cover and the thickness and everything. There's so many things to feel in a physical stage rather than going through the everything in digital. I still like to have in my hand too, like, uh, you know, looking at in front of me and touching it. And, uh, you know, at the end, uh, we are applying on a physical actor anyway, so it's a good way to do that. But whatever kind of makes sense to go digital, I really transitioning to that direction a lot. Even like uh, I'm making a respirator in digital right now because of COVID. Oh, wow. And there's lots of yeah restriction on set, you know. And uh, like I said, like a distance we walk together is a pretty much like a dentist walking on someone, you know, so close. And most of the mask, it leaks the air. You really have to be really tight to seal the everything around the face because yeah, applying a makeup and being on set, you will be end up wearing five hours or more all day. It's like a doctor, and you see like lots of pictures online, like a doctor wearing a mask all day, indentation and scar, and we don't want that. So what I'm doing is I scanned my face and I sculpted the mask fit on my face so it, there would be a minimum pressure on my face to wear it and make it more comfortable. And if I do that physically, it takes two times longer you know, to make that. So just uh, makes sense to go digital. And uh, I'm having fun to figure out a new thing too. Like, so, and especially like nowadays, there's so, so much social distancing and I'm, I'm trying to cut my crew a lot. So if I have a scanner, and the digital printer, I can pretty much do it myself in my shop, so. My last question regards your legacy. Quote, our job is recreating nature and our art is realism. 
It is impossible to create something better than nature can, so we are more like interpreters or translators. A good artist knows the subtlety and language of nature, close quote. I just wonder what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to all the work you already have produced and the work you still want to produce? When I kind of debating if I take the darkest hour or not as a job, and after I finished that, and after I finished the bombshell, there was a concept that I supposed to do one way or the other, like a film or fine art. It's a really strange because many people ask me, okay, which one are you going to do? Or are you keep working on a film? But uh, what I realized in me was no matter what I do, whatever I touch and create will be my work, either fine art or film work. And I won't do something I don't want to do. Anyway, so I decided to do both or whatever. Even like、uh, in the future, if something new come up, I will work on it. Even now, I don't like to repeat same thing over and over again, and I like something new. Even like、uh, when I was a kid, I had so many interest in、uh, so many different things. I used to want to be an architect, but it's it's just too old now to start that. But、uh, you know, I I I I still there's so many things I want to do. I don't have much time left, you know. Like、uh, life is short, <laughs> so I decided to take the job based on that idea that it has to be meaningful. And for me, and for someone who I work with, yeah, that、like, uh, this uh, new show came to me. I cannot go into detail, but this is the subject I wanted to work on for a long time. And suddenly, the director contacted me about this. It was really coincidence, great coincidence, and it will be really meaningful for me and for the director, for the actor, and also audience. So I will decide based on that, and also artwork too, because probably at the longest, I have like a thirty more years to work on something. You are still young. You have so many days ahead of you. <laughs> But I think you realize by now that older you get, the day becomes shorter and shorter. And it's amazing, like to realize what you can do in a year and what you cannot do in a year. So I just decide what I do based on that. I want to appreciate the time I was given. You know. And speaking about appreciating time, I definitely appreciate all the time you have given me. Thank you so much, Kazu. Whether listeners understand the technical aspects of makeup or not, there is an emotional reaction to all the work you've done. And、uh, again, thank you, thank you for everything. <laughs>、right. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Kazu for calling in, and to Eric, of course, for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. To learn more about Kazu's work. You can visit his website at kazustudios.com, and we ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.